BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Elisa Pressman, and today we are talking about puberty. So we're not just talking about ideas about puberty. We're going really deep into how to approach conversations with kids from the earliest ages through adolescence. We're talking about language that you can use if you're struggling to find the right words. We're talking about different kinds of questions and logistics that have come across my guests' seminars. My guest is Vanessa Kroll Bennett, who's the founder of Dynamo Girl, which is a company focused on building girls' self-esteem through physical activity and puberty education. She is awesome and has fantastic language and support for kids and parents to really make this whole puberty thing less overwhelming, more explicit, and minus all of the shame. So this starts pretty early. If you have babies, this is still really, really relevant. I know that's hard to believe, but we'll get into why. And certainly if you have kids who are 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, definitely listen up. And hopefully this gives you some concrete tools and tips for having really important conversations and um, messages in your household. If you enjoy this episode, please don't hesitate to subscribe, rate, and please write a review. And if you have any general feedback, please don't hesitate to DM me on at Raising Good Humans podcast, where you can also ask me questions that I can answer on my Instagram or on the episode itself. And lastly, if you have kids listening, little ears may not be ready for this podcast. So maybe put some earbuds in and listen to it on your own. (laughs) We're getting into some pretty explicit language. So I don't want any surprises. I mean, there's certain things that you start kind of as soon as a kid is talking or understands language. First of all, you use the anatomically correct terminology, penis, vagina, vulva, testicles, and that can feel strange to people who didn't grow up using that terminology, right? Some people, lots of people grew up in families where everyone had different nicknames, right? So I know some people who call a vagina a mushy, for instance, but it's really important to know the correct terminology and 
there's a bunch of reasons why that is true. So in terms of age appropriateness, as soon as your child, as soon as you're talking to your child, it's their penis, it's their vagina, it's their vulva, it's their testicles. Not that there isn't room for other terms, because once they go to school, once they start socializing, once they go to camp, they're going to come home with all sorts of stuff. But you want to make sure they actually know the terms and are able to say the terms and understand that there's no shame associated with the terms. Another thing that starts really early is the issue of consent. Because consent isn't just about saying yes or no to having sex with someone. There's one, before we go into consent, I was just going to say that even on the changing table, when you're doing body parts, your nose, your eyes, your, your mouth, your penis, these are not, these, these things feel uncomfortable. They'll only get more comfortable as you practice. So even with little babies practice, but also there is some research when you mentioned the number of reasons to know the body parts, I'm imagining one of them that you're referring to is the fact that we know that in some research, kids are less likely to have someone to be victim of a predator right? So or abuse. It's considered an issue of safety to know and be able to name all of the parts of your body. There is research that Bonnie Ruff cites in her book that there's a corollary between children who know how to name parts of their bodies and lower rates of being victims of predatory behavior. There's also a safety issue in terms of if your child has a health issue, a discomfort, a pain, a sting, an itch, it's important that they be able to describe exactly where in their body it is. You know, you tell your kid what their elbow is, what their ear is, there's no reason that you shouldn't accept people feel uncomfortable. And the things that we don't mention, right? If we don't talk about something, it sort of, it infers shame onto that particular body part, which we don't want to do. Everyone has a comfort level about where and when they talk about body parts, genitalia, puberty, life changes, all of those things. But if you never talk to your child about these things, they are going to assume that it is shameful. And that's why you don't talk to them about it. Um, our, one of our favorite quotes is from Mr. Rogers at Dynamo Girl. We talk about this all the time that which is mentionable is manageable, right? Beautiful. From your perspective, the, the more you name it, the less big that emotion feels, right? Mm -hmm. It becomes manageable with puberty. It's also the emotional stuff, but also the physical stuff. If you can mention it, I mean, when we run our workshops and this is, this is a very interesting phenomenon. If you say the term vaginal discharge to a group of eight-year-old girls, <laughs> right? This is exact, this is exact case in point. If you say the term vaginal discharge. <laughs> I'm girl, an eight-year-old girl. <laughs> no, you're not. Because an eight-year-old girl won't laugh. She'll say, oh, that's what that is. I have that stuff. I see it in my underwear. And when it dries, it's kind of, white and crusty. I never knew what that was, right? Matter of fact, no big deal. Thank you for letting me know. If you say that word to a group of 45-year-old women, Mm -hmm. they laugh (laughs) like you did. They put their heads down. They walk out of the room. So in many ways, just like naming the body parts, also just- The process, the body process. 
body process, it normalizes it. And if you get to them early enough, by the time they're sort of like the shame, the skepticism, the embarrassment into the tween and teen years, at least they're armed with the information that you've already been able to give them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's totally, and for something, for instance, I'm going to say it again, something like vaginal discharge. Keep saying it. <laughs> the more I say it, you're going to, by the time I've said it 10 times, you're not even going to laugh. It's really important. If a girl has a yeast infection, her vaginal discharge may not look or smell healthy. If she doesn't know what it's called, or she assumes there's something shameful about it because no one's ever spoken to her about it, she's not going to bring it up. And maybe this is the kid who has a yeast infection and is deeply uncomfortable and is, you know, not taking care of her body because she doesn't know how to talk about it. So often it's early, but it has to be age appropriate. If it's a topic where you're introducing it, there's kind of one way to talk about it. If you're responding to a child's question, there's another way to talk about it. So my colleague, Mary Patratty tells a story of her five-year-old. They're walking their dog and he's like, how did I come out of you? And she's like, oh, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I get to like tell him all about conception and birth. (laughs) And then her social work training kicked in and she looked at him and she was like, huh, why are you asking? And that's right. <laughs> now, if their dog came out first and then he came out <laughs> and she realized he just like had no conception that his dog wasn't his sibling. And that was the source of it. So we always talk about finding out where a question is coming from. Now, I find it's often more complicated for parents to initiate conversation, to give information unsolicited than it is to respond to a question. Um, But that's such a great thing to remember. And this is true almost about everything, which is to kind of ask a question back to figure out where, where you're meeting your child. I do think also young, you know, from potty training where you have your kids, typically it's just easier if they go to, you know, they're witnessing you go to the bathroom so often that it's not a thing. They're going to witness you at some point having your period. Right. So there, there's room for those conversations early on and they're usually less scary. And like now I have an 11 year old and a 14 year old. They don't want to be in the bathroom with me when I have my period or ever. But there's ways to introduce it. So like, you know, I don't want anyone in the bathroom with me when I have my period, but there are ways, you know, you can leave tampons out. On That's the right. So they they inquire. They inquire, I have three sons and one daughter. My daughter will inquire constantly. My sons typically won't inquire except I make a gesture and I offer. And so I had tampons out and I said to my boys like, hey, it's actually really cool. Do you want to see how a tampon works? The the engineering of it is really fascinating. And they were like, yeah. Oh, that's so cool. And we unwrapped it and I showed them how it worked. And then I grabbed a pad and I showed them how a pad worked and nobody, you know, they're not being invited into those conversations. They're not being shown. And so early on, they get the message that they're, they shouldn't know about it or they don't Mm -hmm. need to know about it or they're excluded from it. And so again, it was about 
inviting them into the conversation and like a super low stakes way. They're not watching me put in a tampon, (laughs) out a tampon, God forbid. Um, But they get to sort of see it and access it in a way that feels like very, very chill and relaxed. Yeah. So potty training, when you potty train, you use terminology, the proper anatomical terminology. Um, When you talk about your own body, right? Because I think some parents are comfortable talking about their child's body in that way, but not their own body. Yeah. Let's, let's pause and talk about that for a second. What are some things that you talk about with parents to get them to start to come to terms with how they feel about their experience going through puberty or if they've even thought about it in a conscious way since having kids or ever, what are some great prompts to get parents in the mindset of getting more comfortable with things that they might not have ever experienced comfort with? So one thing we spend a lot of time on with our workshops is specifically helping adults leave their baggage at the door. Were they an early bloomer or a late bloomer? Did they have a you know traumatic first period experience? Um, did they have large breasts as a young girl and were like harassed or mocked? Were they a boy who grew really late? So we we ask parents to kind of identify and we actually go through an exercise where we have them write down a memory, a kind of a seminal memory. Like for me, I gained a bunch of weight. I sort of did the the classic grow out before you grow up, which is super common in puberty, particularly for girls, but I didn't know that. And so I just thought, I just felt badly about the way I looked. And so that's what I carry with me as I parent my own kids through puberty and I work with families. Now it's much easier, as you know, in your own profession, it's much easier to give other people advice about how to work with their children than it is to do that with your very own children. Indeed it is. And I have one child who is incredibly comfortable talking about all this stuff. And one who's like, if I have to hear, (laughs) like she just wants it all to go away. And, you know, it's probably because I wasn't really taking her temperament into account. I was just kind of being me. And that's, it was a little too in your face for her. I think there's something in that. So I think part of it is you you figure out what your baggage is and you do the best you can to leave it to the side. Now that doesn't mean going stum and just like shutting down and compartmentalizing it. It means talking to friends. It means talking to your partner. It means talking to a therapist. It is about finding an outlet for that memory and whatever those that baggage is. It just means not dumping that on your children, not bringing that into the room when you have that conversation, partially because our kids don't need to carry our baggage and partially because it's a very different world now. And so what puberty is like, what information they're exposed to, the age at which girls are developing, all of those things are different. And so those are other reasons not to bring our baggage into it. And (laughs) this is making me have floods of memories of like ridiculous baggage that I just, you know, like I'm sure many people our age had parents who were like, don't use tampons or you'll get toxic shock syndrome. And it was like pouring over those pamphlets, pouring over them. And I'm like, I still don't understand. I read it like cover to cover. I'm like, I still don't understand. Um, 
like everybody got there, whatever the fear was, whatever the baggage was. Totally. So tip number one is don't bring your baggage into the room. Leave it outside the door and figure out which adults you can talk to about those feelings and memories that you're carrying with you without putting it on your kids. Tip number two, which is what you were just starting to talk about, is who know your audience, right? What kind of kid do you have? And what's the best way to get into a conversation with that kid, right? So one kid you can go to and say, hey, let's talk about menstruation and your vagina and your ovaries and your uterus. And your kid's going to be like, woohoo, let's do it. Absolutely, right? And then you have one kid where if you come in them at them frontal like that, they are literally going to run out of the room. So know your audience. And that may mean you're driving in a car. That may mean you're cooking in the kitchen. That may mean your kid is in the bath with the shower curtain closed and you're sitting nearby, but you're not looking at each other. It also may mean you're not asking them direct questions or providing direct information, right? I read this article. It was really interesting. I want you to take a look at it and tell me what you think, or I want to watch this documentary together. And then we can talk about it, right? You're going to, I heard this great speaker and I, she said this piece of information. I'm curious, like, do you agree with that? Right? So there's that. Know your audience. Is it someone you can go frontal? Is it someone you need to come in? I like to say, you've got to come in through the side door. Mm-hmm use sort of more subtle, more oblique approaches. That's tip number two. One is leave your baggage at the door. Two is know your audience. Three is if you have a kid who's not super psyched to engage in the conversation, right? Not the one who's like, yeah, tampons, lay it on me. But the one who's like, please do not mention any menstrual care product in my presence ever again. My belief is that until that child walks out of the room, she is still listening. So she may be lying down on a bed, completely facing away from you. But if she has not gotten up and left the room, she is still listening. And that may be the safest and most comfortable way for her to hear things that feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, a kid like that, you're not going to go into the encyclopedia of information. You're going to give them a few pieces of information. You're going to make sure that any term you use, you've defined and explained. Um, I had a really kind of instructive and fascinating experience with one of my kids who he must've been like age 10 or 11 said to me, Hey mom, what's rape? And I realized he'd read a New York Times sports section article about a series of rapes that had happened on a football team. And so I said, oh, well, you know, rape is when someone is forced to have sex and they don't want to. So then two hours later, we're driving in the car together and I realized, hey, kiddo. Do you know what sex is? (laughs) Right. And he was like, not really. Mm -hmm. And I realized I had started like miles past where he actually was. Um, So, you know, define, even if they seem utterly obvious to us, define the terms. It's Um, so important. I have like two 
moments that clarify this so much for me. One was I was going to give some porn talk and I just said that in a very flippant way, but I wanted to ask some kid, like I was doing a little data, like I just wanted to do some anthropological studying and I was talking to some fifth and sixth graders and I asked them if they had heard of porn, if they, you know, had seen porn, different things. They all were fully engaged in the conversation. They all seemed super aware of what porn was. And then I said, do you guys know what pornography is? And nobody did. They all just said, well, we know it's just something bad. And so I was like, oh, okay. So yeah, rewind. Let's start this conversation in a different way. And the other thing was that one of my friends who's a who's socially active and was wearing those, you know, pussy hats. Mm-hmm. I just said pussy, but um, in an appropriate context. In an appropriate context before or whenever, you know, four years ago when that was a, anyway, her daughter went to protest with her, her, I think she was in fourth grade at the time. Actually, she might've been in second grade now that I think of it. So she was, her daughter went to go with her. And then she said, like a year later, they were talking about it. And it came to be that, or she came to realize that she thought it was a penis, that pussy was a nickname for penis. And so there are so many little weird moments where kids seem like they get it. Even though, side note, what a bummer to have to explain pussy to anybody, right. <laughs> let alone young, younger. Thousands of women were walking around with penises on there. Yeah. But then to think that was so, it was so interesting. Like she really was completely confused about something that was, but so many details were explained, but not the original definition of the term. So I'm, I'm saying all those just to really loudly agree with you that we really, like no matter how simple it seems to us and how much nodding we get, it's always helpful to ask those questions. I mean, I... I'm not going to use a personal example, but I will say that we definitely in our household were confusing, you know, erection, orgasm, and ejaculation. Like it was all very confusing. Which is natural. I mean, two of those actually sound a lot alike. Yeah. I mean, that's that's another reason why it's important not to ban other terms for a yeah physiology in your house, because if your kids, if they're quote unquote banned or unacceptable, they have no opportunity to ask. So it's not like a great point. Mm -hmm. You can't ever use those words. You just need to know and appropriately use the correct terms. And then you can ask me, you know, about other words and other terms. And because you don't want them walking around wondering about stuff. It can feel frightening. It can feel out of control. It can feel embarrassing. Um, So you do want to create an environment to allow your kids to ask about that. I mean, to your point about like figuring out where their starting point is. um, So some of the prompts that we like to use sort of classic, you know, the curiosity prompts. 
I'm wondering what you know about. I'm curious if you've noticed. I'm wondering if you can tell me what you think, right? So what your friends think. <laughs> what are your, I'm wondering. Just what in case. Say. Although I, on that one, I will say they worry that they're going to sort of like out their friends or embarrass their friends. Um, so I'll always say, if I'm saying like, hey, well, what are your friends think about this? I'll say like, totally confidential. You don't need to talk Yeah. Like, I just, I'm just want to get a sense of what's, what's like a temperature on. check. Right. So I realize that my 10 year old is of the age where he is the average age of boys exposure to pornography. And I would imagine that age has actually gone down in the pandemic with kids exposure to electronics and all of that and remote learning and all of that. But I realized I hadn't addressed it with him. So, you know, we're sitting on the couch talking about Roblox and I kind of, as we do. As one does. And I, instead of saying, hey, have you ever seen pornography? I said to him, hey, I'm wondering if you've ever heard of pornography. And he said, yeah. And I said, what, well, what do you know about it? And he said, well, I Googled it. I said, oh, you know, what did you Google? Again, my tone was like non-judgmental. I didn't freak out. I didn't, I, at this point, I have given him not one single piece of information. All I've done is ask him, elicit from him. I Googled it in my heart. My heart is beating out of my chest. I'm like, oh, what'd you Google? I Googled Pornhub. Oh, cool. And what was that like, right? Not what did you see? How mm -hmm. dare you? That's a violation. There was nothing punitive, nothing, no freaking out. And he goes, well, it was like, kind of like the sex from Ace Ventura, but like different. <laughs> and like, that was his comparison, right? It was like mm -hmm. Pornhub and Ace Ventura. Jim Carrey having sex is like his sort of, I guess, main sexual reference. Sex <laughs> Yeah. Which is, um, I was like memo to self. I need to go back and look at the sex scenes for me. Yeah. I can't think of that at all. Um, so I, I think I gave him one piece of information response, which is, Hey, you know, the, the people, what they're doing in pornography, those are actors and that's not a real relationship. And so I want you to know that that is not real life. And that, and that was it. So he said, Oh, okay. And we moved back to Roblox. But in that situation, it was like, that's a situation where I knew I had an issue that I needed to bring up mm -hmm. to my kid. And there are going to be things that we just have to raise that don't get asked, that don't come up. The school doesn't email us and tell us to bring it up. I knew I needed to address it, but I needed to do it at a time for myself and for my kid where I could do it in a calm, non-judgmental way. And where I don't lecture. And I think that is incredibly hard. It's hard for me. It's hard for all the parents that we work with. The temptation to lecture, particularly when we are worried, afraid, stressed out, uncomfortable, um, it's really easy to start lecturing. So I have two rules of thumb. One is if you're talking for more than a couple of minutes, stop talking and ask ask if there are any questions. 
Mm-hmm. And two, add one for a kid, you know, a younger kid, a six, an eight, even a 10, although he probably could have handled more, add one piece of information. Don't load them up with the entire world of puberty. Stray Club was founded by four women with 11 children between them. They noticed that their girls' bathrooms were overflowing with personal care products while their boys could barely be bothered with a basic bar of soap. So they asked, have these boys ever washed their faces? They embarked on a mission to help guys feel more confident and engage in self-care with simple and effective skin and acne care products. Strike Club was born. Strike Club products are effective, safe, easy to use, and just a little bit less embarrassing. They are formulated, tested, and approved by a dermatologist. And the products are infused with unique ingredients that kill the bacteria that cause acne without dryness or irritation. And they are formulated without parabens, sulfates, phthalates, and the formulas are cruelty-free because safety is non-negotiable. And Strike Club has been verified by the Environmental Working Group. Not to mention, they call it locker room worthy because there are sense or no sense packaging and branding that are designed for just guys and they make skincare less embarrassing. Strike Club is available at Target stores and Target online and at strikeclub.com. If you go to strikeclub.com right now and enter G-O-O-D, good, at checkout, you will receive 15% off your purchase. That's strike with a Y, S-T-R-Y-K-E-C-L-U-B.com. Code good for 15% off. Remember, it's strike with a Y, strike club, because guys have skin too. All right, head over to jane.com for a highly curated boutique marketplace featuring women's fashion, trends, accessories, home decor, children's clothing, and more. Every day is a sale. They offer a wide variety of categories and styles so you can find something for everyone in your life. And over 400 new products drop daily. So there's everything for your whole family, including your pup. And if you love a good deal, and like to see savings, jane.com is the site for you. By shopping at .com, you're supporting small businesses because they offer products and name brands from over 2,000 shops at amazing prices. So go to jane.com's place for discovery. There's basically an endless aisle you can browse or you can search for specifically what you want and enjoy. Visit jane.com slash humans. I'm Kareen Eldor. Ever feel like you're playing small? Well, turn up the volume on my podcast, Share a Voice. Every Thursday, I sit down with the wave makers and game changers on everyone's radar. I'll be sharing inspo and takeaways based on my conversations with disruptors, visionaries, and compelling creatives about how they express themselves in their work. Prepare for tons of mic drop moments and subscribe so that you catch every soundbite. I'm fascinated by the power of feeling heard and taking up space. And I'm amped up about sharing these conversations with you. So along those lines, while we're in the six, seven, eight-year-old range, and then we can go into bodies changing and talking about that with the kids who are 
experiencing it. I'm just thinking a lot of people ask what you, you know, like when kids ask about sex, Mm -hmm. the language to use and the timing. And of course, there's such a range and you have to figure out your own personal beliefs and you have to have some sense of what their peers are going to know because you want them to learn from you, not their peers. But I think it's worth going through. Now, of course, I can tell you one of my kids, as it goes along with what I've described before about them, one of them in second grade was asking me about how babies were made, but not the way she asked in kindergarten. She was like, how does the DNA from one person get inside the other person? Like she wanted to know the mechanics. So I explained it to her and I said, this is going to sound a little bit strange. Mm -hmm. What I'm about to tell you is going to sound a little bit strange. So bear with me. I told her and when I explained the penis, that one of the ways (laughs) to have sex is the penis going into the vagina. She looked at me and she said, let's not talk about this anymore. And I knew she was actually like, I've changed my mind. I'm (laughs) done with this for now. I think I said, by the way, when I explain this to you, I'd like you to keep this between us, not because there's anything wrong with talking about this, but because some of your friends' parents have not made the decision to share this with their kids. And I'd really not want you to be the one to do it. And she was like, I never want to talk about this again. So I think it's fine (laughs) that we don't talk about it. And then with my... No, no risk. And then with my other child, I just had, it's so amazing or it's not the stork. I can't even remember, but I'll put that in the show notes. You can't see, nobody can see, but Vanessa's holding it up. It's so amazing. Those are a series of books that really get into the ins and outs of our bodies. And I did not warn her father about what was inside of this book. They were just like out. And so she chose that book as her bedtime story. And that was how she, and then my older daughter ran into my room and was like, you cannot believe what's happening right now. It's so funny. (laughs) Surprise. So, I mean, that is exactly, so if you, if you want the language, right? Because often I actually find kids more often ask how are babies made long before they ever ask what is sex? For sure. For sure. So as you mentioned, not only are there many ways to have sex, there are also many ways to make babies. And so I make sure it's clear in our workshops and in my own household that you, that kids understand that there are many, many ways to make a family. And we'll, you know, talk briefly. And often in our workshops, we have girls who whose families were created in all different ways. Mm-hmm. And that gives them an opportunity to share their information and how their family was made. And, and then, they probably have a lot more information, right? Because clearly have adults who have talked to them about it. Mm-hmm. We often will have parents let us know if their family was made in um, not the biological penis and the vagina way. Mm-hmm. Adoption, IVF, any of those things, if it's a blended family, all of those things. Um, So, number one is to make it clear that families are made in all different ways and that all are equally wonderful and beautiful. 
And that's at any age, right? Like that, that that part of it, you could say from birth. That is at any age. Now for kids growing up in our generation, for instance, it was very unusual. And when we were growing up to have parents of the same gender in this generation, it's much more common and they Mm -hmm. don't even, they don't, you know, nobody flinches. Right. It's the same thing with, um, you know, gender identity, all those things. Mm -hmm. So we are, we grew up in a different generation. So we're very careful and (laughs) sensitive and all that. And I was like, Oh yeah, she has two moms. Totally. Um, So I think there's like, sometimes we're overly sensitive where the kids are actually more comfortable and more knowledgeable than Mm -hmm. we are. So number one is there's a lot of different ways that families are made. And then you can explain to them that the, you know, one way biologically to make a family and to make a baby. And this was the exact language I use in my household and to which I had the exact same reaction you did, which is a male can put his penis into a vagina and the sperm comes out and it fertilizes the egg and the egg becomes an embryo and it grows in the uterus. When I told my two of my children that, they looked at me and they said, um, can you please stop talking about that? <laughs> now, I that conversation happened from their question. I did not initiate it. Yeah. They asked. I gave them straightforward, factual information, uncomplicated. I didn't talk about the man needing to be erect. I didn't talk about, you know, how long it takes for ejaculation. I didn't talk about any of that. Right. But it's useful to know that a few years earlier, to your point of like telling your kids, hey, maybe don't talk about this in school because different families have different timelines for discussing this. When my daughter was four, she came home and said, my friend told me that if a woman puts her mouth on a man's penis, then she can get pregnant. So it was an easy fix for me to explain where the penis goes and how one way one can get pregnant. You know, I wasn't, I'm not, we're not a family that freaks out when our kids come home with that information, but for other families who are worried, that can be very stressful. So, you know, keep it simple, keep it straightforward. Something that I like to remind people all the time is like, you get a do over. Yes. If you mess up, which you will, like we do in all of parents. When you mess up. All of the right. time. Not if you mess up. When, when you, you mess up, up. When you mess up, you get a do-over. And the do-over sounds something like this. When I explained how a baby is made, I made a mistake and I forgot to mention that the stuff that comes out of a man's penis is called sperm, Right. Or I made a mistake because when I explained something to you, I didn't use the real, the real name for the body part. I used a name that I used to use as a kid, but it's really important to me that you know the body part. Or when you asked me this question, I made a mistake and I told you I didn't know when really I felt a little bit worried explaining it to you, right? Kids, That's a very good uh, do-over statement because that happens a lot. It happens a lot. And kids love it when we are fallible. 
kids love it when we don't know. Kids love it when we are inexpert and not an expert, but inexpert. They want us <laughs> to make mistakes. <laughs> Just in case you weren't clear. They want us to make mistakes. And it's such an amazing opportunity to show them how we mess up. And particularly for our daughters, many of whom are terrified of making mistakes and messing up as the beloved Rachel Simmons has taught us all. We have to show them our imperfections so that they can feel comfortable with their imperfections. So do-overs, like if you learn nothing else about talking to your kids about puberty, it is you get a do-over, you should embrace your do-over, you should name your do-over, and it will only serve to bring you closer to your kid for further conversations about it. Here is a cool new brand, Ancient Nutrition. They have one goal, to transform the health of every individual on the planet. That drives Ancient Nutrition to create whole food nutritional products made with real ingredients for real results you can feel and see. Every product they create is rooted in tradition and supported by science. Ancient Nutrition is based in traditional Chinese herbalism and Ayurveda, which are ways of eating and thinking that have survived generations. Combined with today's modern research, the founders, Dr. Josh Axe and Jordan Rubin, both experienced healthy journeys that hit close to home and navigated those with ancient practices. And so they decided to create products for themselves and their loved ones and share them with everybody. Every one of the products has a purpose. The fan favorite and the one I tried is the multi-collagen protein. So that's a great place to start if you're looking for it. Multi-collagen protein can help revitalize your joints, skin, and hair. And it can reduce joint discomfort as early as day one. It can help smooth crow's feet after four weeks of use and improve skin tone after eight weeks. It's made with clinically studied ingredients, including five types of collagen. Easily stir and scoop it in your morning coffee like I do. It's unflavored and dissolves right away, which is actually kind of a big deal because every time I've gotten a powder to add to my coffee, as I've been on a long search for, it does not dissolve well and it's just kind of lumpy. And this ancient nutrition multi-collagen protein is not. It really just adds the nutrients without adding anything else. So go to ancientnutrition.com and use humans for 20% off your first Ancient Nutrition purchase, H-U-M-A-N-S. If you're looking to revitalize your joints, skin, and hair, do it with clinically studied ingredients and use H-U-M-A-N-S for 20% off at store.draxe.com. Okay, so now I think we're, we got a really good picture of these early conversations, the tone, the vibe, the questions we ask, the non-judgment, the breaths we take to be able to sit in uncomfortable conversations and some of the language, if you're struggling to find the language, and that's totally understandable. This is one of those topics that, yeah, it just didn't, didn't get a lot of 
I mean, actually in my household, it definitely was really, yeah. I think we both grew up with parents who were very comfortable with that sexuality and education. Bedtime reading in my house, and this will not come as a surprise to you given what I do and my brother does, was where did I come from and what's happening to me? And we would have sleepovers. I would have a friend over and he would have a friend over and we would sit on one of our beds and together, the four of us read, you know, what's happening to me or where did I come from? And it was like, I don't even think we watched TV. Like we literally just poured through those books, which is obviously makes that too. So Vanessa is referring to her brother who created... I mean, not for nine-year-olds, but not for those of you who have teenagers, one of the most brilliant insights into the experience of puberty mm-hmm. and adolescence, a show called Big Mouth. It's amazing. But, you know, and, and I actually think it's great if you have, just like if you're uncomfortable with this, watch it by yourself. Watch it as a parent just to start to, understand in a different way from a looser perspective and don't be mad at me because or or Vanessa because (laughs) it's got every word you thought you'd never (laughs) ever allow your kid to hear or watch but it's extraordinary I I mean it's beautifully emotionally intelligent on top of truly laying bare puberty and all sorts of identity issues um if you are going to let your kid watch it and your kid is not yet a teen, I would really recommend you watching it with your child because there is a lot of stuff that is quite strange and could be quite confusing. Um, and it would be really wonderful if you can talk about it with your child. Um, now, for some people, that's really hard and uncomfortable. If it's so hard and uncomfortable to have that conversation with your kid, I'm not sure your kid should be watching it because they're going to walk away with a lot of questions. Yeah. Um, yeah. And by the way, Nick would say the same thing. Like it's, and then, and, you know, I would say the same thing about books. I mean, if you're going to give your kid a book to read about puberty, about sex, you really want to look at it first. So the Roby Harris books are amazing. There are a lot of drawings of naked people. The Roby Harris books were the ones we were referring to that it's so amazing. It's not the stork that I had for my kids, which I was very familiar with. So I felt comfortable and I knew that I kind of wanted to lay it out there. Their dad did not know that. And so you really want to be aware of what's in there because of course it's explicit. And even more so, I was like, oh, these are great books. And I gave them to my kids to read and they opened them up, turned on their heel, gave them back to me and were like, put those in a closed (laughs) cabinet. I will say as starter books, Cara Notterson's books, the American Girl series, the characters. Those are great are great. They are a very gentle entry point into puberty, the emotional and the physical side. And she has guy stuff about boys. So it's not, even though it's the American girl company, it's not. There's a boy book. There's a boy book called guy stuff. She has guy stuff. Feelings book is coming out in February. Oh, which is is perfect. Great. Um, I will put everything in the show notes. Great. So those books are a gentler 
less frontal. Again, those are the books where you're coming in through the side door. For the kid who voraciously wants to see middle-aged people, drawings of middle-aged people having sex, Roby Harris books are great. Um, Because <laughs> who doesn't want to see that? I mean, I feel like everyone, it's, it's a wonderful visualization. I hope you all walk away with that, with that in your mind. Yeah. So if you're kids are watching stuff, you, it's great to know what your kids are watching. Um, you should be watching with them if you're really worried or not sure, even just one episode. And something that's super, super, super critical, particularly in the world of remote learning and online and all of that, is that your kids should know that they can come to you with any questions or worries or confusions and that you are not going to freak out at them for having seen that you don't need to interrogate them. How did you see that? How do you know? The most important thing is that you provide them with clarification and information about what they have seen, because it not only can be confusing, it can also be frightening. You know, um, one of my clients had all of the screens in the house. They were all protected Mm -hmm. except for theirs. And It's this exactly what you said. It's during the pandemic. Their nine-year-old got hold of their iPad and found their way to porn and didn't say anything because they had heard it's really bad. And so they thought they had done something so wrong. Anyway, this little boy was crying every single night because he didn't know, like it came out after, you know, some investigating, but he was crying every night because he thought he did something really bad. And the worst part is he was a little aroused by it. And Mm -hmm. so that scared him. And Mm -hmm. he thought there was some, like he was some kind of monster. And so it took a conversation with mom to find out, hey, you, you know, it's very natural how you responded to that. Yeah. Here's what's happening. Yeah. And so it's really important what you're saying, even if you think that you're so careful and that you've had these conversations, the shame that all of these things come with can really weigh on kids. And it can be more than just too soon for them. It can be emotionally difficult for them to deal with alone. And so it's so much more important. This whole thing is about connecting and having conversations or watching whatever you think your kids and their friends are watching. Even if you don't think it's appropriate for them, if that's what all their friends are watching, there is a very good chance that they're going to sneak it somehow because they really, really, really want to see it. So just being there with them is so, you know, and being able to answer questions is probably more effective than saying, this isn't happening. Not to sit and watch porn together. To be clear, that is not what I mean. Right. I, I, I'm glad you clarified that. Um, <laughs> but it's really, I mean, it's really critical that they, and sometimes that's just, that just means you're just around, you know, as Lisa Damore likes to call it, you're a potted plant, right? And sometimes that means you're just available for things to percolate, particularly with your kids who are more reserved who need a little more time to process, who are kind of less likely to just throw questions at you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, which is the importance of breath. So a lot of these conversations and situations are overwhelming, are stressful, and 
So anytime you get a question or you have an encounter with your kid and your first instinct is to kind of freak out, is to shout or get upset, just like try, try, try to remember to take a deep breath. And I have this memory of sitting in the car with my mom. And whenever we were being really annoying, she would start to use her Lamaze breathing in the car. And like, if you ask any of my siblings, we can all make her deep breathing face, but it's like, she would like close her eyes and, and we thought it was so weird. We were like, oh my God, we have like the weird seventies mom, except she was it allowed her dead right. <laughs> to like, it was, she was so ahead of the times in so many ways and allowed her to like take a breath and calm down. And I think I mean, the neurological foundations for how breath can help us in so many ways is like, my kids are always like, oh God, stop telling me to take a deep breath. It's so annoying. And then when I finally explained to them the science behind it, they were like, oh, that's why you've been telling me all these years to take a deep breath. And once they understood the why, they were willing to do it, you know, through their like snotty tears and like they're hyperventilating. Um, so taking a deep breath is like a number one critical for all of these conversations. And then you're also in a way helping even with older kids, there's, you're still co-regulating. So, you know, when you take that deep breath, even if they're not taking that deep breath, you are like, in a sense, allowing space for them to borrow some of your nervous system. Mm-hmm. And you're buying yourself time. Right. That pause. And that you're not sure how to answer, or you're not even sure how to tell them you're not sure how to answer. If you take a deep breath, you come up with a kind of constructive way of saying, Hey, you know what? I'm not sure. Let's look at, let's look it up together. Or I think this is right, but I might have it wrong. So I'm going to check and come back to you. And that's, you know, that's the other thing. Parents always feel like they have to answer everything on the spot. Like I gotta know I'm infallible. I'm omnipotent. I got to, I got to give it everything on the spot. And the reality is that kids are like willing to have you say to them, I'm really not sure. Can you give me a couple of hours and I'll come back to you? Or I'm really not sure. Why don't we look it up together? Or I mean, if it's a question about your own personal life, which is something we get a lot in our workshops, you know, for instance, how old were you when you lost your virginity, which is a question that I have gotten in my own family. Right. So mm-hmm. you're torn between two poles because, on the one hand, you want to encourage your kids to ask you questions, mm-hmm. to feel like it's an open relationship, that you are connected. On the other hand, it is our right to preserve our privacy. And we are not obligated to tell our children everything about our lives, God forbid. <laughs> so I said to my kid who asked me, you know, I really love that you feel comfortable asking me this question. It's my right to keep some things private to myself. So I'm going to choose not to answer that question right now, but I want to encourage you to always ask me questions and I will decide if those questions are things that I want to answer or not. Beautiful. And she was like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And And it was totally fine. Now she was 10 at the time. If she was 15 or 18, you know, I might make a different decision. Mm-hmm. But, but she'll um, be able to ask you again because you left that door open. Hopefully. Hopefully. 
or she'll be repulsed at the thought and not ask you. (laughs) Right. Which is probably more, which is probably more likely, but um, I'll report, I'll report back in a few years. (laughs) (laughs) What are some other questions you're hearing from boys and girls who are transitioning from child to adolescent? So what's so fascinating to me for both boys and girls is their concern about logistics. Okay, I'm listening. Logistics are, for a boy, a, a question about logistics would sound something like, when I get an unexpected erection in class, it's really embarrassing. How do I handle it? What do I do? Or I notice that the underwear I wear doesn't help keep my erection down when I get a surprise erection. What do I do, right? So for boys, that's the kind of logistical worry or concern or something like, hey, all the guys on my basketball team are wearing their pennies with no shirts underneath, but they all have underarm hair and I don't, and I'm not really sure what to do, right? So it's where the intersection of puberty and kind of logistical operational worries. And what are your answers there? And then we'll go to the girls. With erections, so often for that, it's actually like, hey, do you think maybe you want to get a different kind of underwear that might give you a little more comfort, a little more protection, an opportunity to maybe tuck your penis in a particular position so someone can't see it? If I don't feel equipped because I don't have a penis and I haven't had erections, Mm -hmm. I may say, do you want to talk to your brother or your father? Or I might say, hey, let me talk to some males that I know and I can get back to you, right? Because he may be asking me because he's more comfortable asking me, but Mm -hmm. he may not want to go directly to a source. So I'll give him a couple of options. With the underarm hair, he's also, he's not just giving me information about, um, and this isn't my kids, this has come up in workshops, but he's he's giving me information. Not only I'm worried about the logistics, i.e. how do I handle the penny? He's communicating to me something larger, which is I feel self-conscious that other people have underarm hair and I don't yet have underarm hair. So my answer to that is twofold, right? I have to address the logistical worry. Hey, how would it be if you wore a t-shirt with your penny? Are there other kids who wear t-shirts with their pennies? And also, hey, I'm wondering what it feels like that lots of other people have underarm hair and you, you haven't yet grown it. What does that what does that feel like? Right. So in that situation, it's kind of twofold. And and also with erections. Hey, how does that, if they haven't told me they're embarrassed or self-conscious when they get an erection in class, what does that feel like? You know, is there someone at school you can talk to if that happens and you're kind of stuck, right? So often those questions are twofold. With girls, logistics is often like almost entirely around menstruation. Mm -hmm. So when we teach girls about menstruation and We teach them how to use all of the different menstrual care products. I put on a huge pair of underwear and I show them how to put a pad in their underwear. But they have the minutia of the questions. Where do, how do I wrap it up? Where do I throw it out? How do I carry it with me to the bathroom? What should I put it into in my backpack? What do I do if I'm going on a sleepover, right? Those 
sound like really minor, inconsequential, oh, just deal with it questions, except they're not. They are really big, important, weighty questions for these kids. And they are feeling very anxious and very stressed. And so the importance of not dismissing what seems minor, like I always joke about how I worry, I sweat the small stuff and I don't sweat the big stuff. So I can actually really relate to those questions. So we walk through all of those logistics. How do you, and then we encourage the parents to walk through with them again, you know, questions like, what if I leak on my pad and I bleed through to my, to my underwear? What if I get my period in school and I don't have my period pack? So things, so answers to that are, we teach them what should go in your period pack and that it should be packed into something that you can't see through. We teach them all sorts of ways to put tampons and pads and back pockets and sleeves. Um, hmm. We also make it clear to them that there is no shame in having your period. And if you want to carry your pad to the bathroom in full view of everyone, carry your pad to the bathroom in full view of everyone. You know, it's, I hope someday we get to a point where a woman or a female having her period is no big deal and you can just carry your tampon in open air. Um, it's still not there. We're, we're not there, although but it's I, better, right? It's better. And then, you know, the questions about like, how do I handle it? What do I do? Who do I, they, you, your kids need to know who to go to in, in school and in camp, who are the trusted adults besides their parents who they can go to. So often I get the question, I have a male teacher and when I need to go and our school's really strict about going to the bathroom but I have to change my pad. How do I handle that? Who do I talk to? Right. So it's like, can you speak to the school nurse and have her let him know if you don't feel comfortable letting him know? Is there a guidance counselor who can give him a heads up? Can you create a campaign at your school about giving kids more freedom to go to the bathroom at a certain age? Um, you know, there's all sorts of, it's not just about the logistics, it also becomes about agency and mm. how do you navigate a system and feel comfortable within that system. I mean, I talked to girls in LA, one of the schools didn't have garbage cans in the stalls. And so they were having to carry their- That is awful. Care product. I mean, you know, maybe out into the main part of the bathroom, but they felt self-conscious. Of course. Who here feels comfortable talking to someone at your school about getting garbage cans. And they were mm -hmm. so excited to have that agency and that advocacy for themselves. Um, I, I think that. they started a chant, if I remember correctly. <laughs> <laughs> I think the logistics are huge for kids of any gender and the importance of not minimizing logistical questions is really, really, really critical. It doesn't sound like, oh, what's the big deal? Who cares? Just get over it. Like stick it in your pocket because the logistical questions are coming from an emotional worry. And so, yeah. it's, hey, that sounds kind of stressful. Let's see if we can figure out what are some ways that we can figure out for you to get your tampon with you to the bathroom or what are some ways for you to deal with your erection while you're sitting in class, right? It's not dismissed. It's, it's engaged. So um, you mentioned a period pack. Yes. Um, what do you put in the period packs and what age do you recommend it? I obviously did it, you know. 
at four. I was going to say, I did it way too early and my kids make so much fun of me and I would give it to their friends and they like, it was like a get, like at, at a certain point, their friends just put up with me. But, um, but I also remember my mother taking my sister to the mall to get her purse and period back. <laughs> like purse. she got a La Sports sack purse for getting her period and like putting her materials in it. And I was seething. I was so, I was so jealous. No, just envy. Yeah. But I love, I mean, I know you've got like, what are you recommending go into the period pack? And what if you're, you know, if your caregiver or parent has never gotten their period and is not a woman and needs to know these things? First of all, it's important that A, there are new products that maybe none of us have ever used for menstrual care or B, they're parents who have never gotten their periods. Mm -hmm. And so those folks are learning alongside their kids. And as tempting as it is to always be the expert with our our children, it's actually incredibly empowering for our kids if we are learning alongside them. So I encourage parents of any gender to learn alongside their kids on how to use different products. And for those of us where there are new products, we can all learn how to use them. The new products are things like period underwear, things, Nixteen are a few different brands. They're super brilliant. They have different levels of absorbency. And when you buy them, it'll show what the level of absorbency. So some can hold up as much as like four tampons worth of menstrual fluid. Um, Others are lighter, maybe two tampons worth of menstrual fluid. They can be washed and run through the washing machine. And so they're obviously much more sustainable. So period underwear, there's also period bathing suits. Ruby Love makes... um, (gasps) I didn't know that. Get out of town. Ruby Love. Ruby Love, um, which have absorption. And they can also be worn with a pad, although I have not tried that. But they, um, for kids who aren't, don't feel ready or who aren't interested in using a tampon, it's a great way for kids to continue to be active and to swim without worrying about leaking. Um, there's also a menstrual cup, which is a very flexible rubber cup that's kind of like is placed up inside the vagina towards closer to the cervix and it collects the menstrual fluid, and then it can be pulled out and rinsed and washed and reinserted. Um, I will admit I have not used one, but millennials, they're very popular with teen girls and millennials. Mm -hmm. Um, And our health and sex educators recommend having two so that if one is needs to be washed, the other one is available. Um, So those are a few of the new products in a period pack. Here's what I would recommend. First of all, and I'm going to hold up the one I have here, Aliza, so you can see it. It should not be see-through. It should not be like a cute neon pink see-through plastic. It should be something where no one can see through it. If your child is using tampons or is potentially interested in using tampons, you can put like a light tampon, the most slender tampon you can. Mm -hmm. I also would recommend if you are teaching your child how to use a tampon, we can actually, we'll talk about that separately. So a slender or light tampon, unless she's already using tampons regularly and kind of has a sense of what um, she wants to use. Panty liners, pads, 
with wings. I like pads with wings because if you leak, it's less likely to get onto your underwear and your pants. I recommend putting a change, an extra pair of underwear in your period pack. Um, I actually travel with like a tiny commando pair of underwear that folds up into a tiny little Mm -hmm. fabric pouch. That's Um, smart. Yeah. It's, you know, one of those tricks that I picked up from Lynn Kroll. Um, (laughs) I don't think think she uses commando underwear. Lynn Um, Kroll is a hero. (laughs) Amazing. She is the best packer you have ever met in your entire life. I actually recommend to the girls to have an extra pair of like leggings in their backpack in case they leak or to keep a sweatshirt in their lockers or in their up around their waist to tie around their waist because that is a problem that was that's never going away the leak never going away there's actually a really lovely episode in big mouth where jesse yes gets her period and andrew gives her his sweatshirt to wrap around her waist and it's because she's wearing white shorts that was amazing that was an amazing Beautiful. That's another reason to teach your boys as well as your girls. Yes. They can be empathetic, supportive friends. Instead of the what the tone is now, which is like, oh, run away. <gasps> She's got a period gross. <gasps> um, so, and the other thing is everything you put in the period pack, if you can take, if you're comfortable going shopping in the pandemic situation, um, or if you can go online and order things together. And then you want to show her how to use each piece that you put in the period pack, right? How to put... Mm -hmm. Those logistics that you're talking about, those details are so... I really love that you said it because it is so important. You can get this all down and then forget you know, I, I know someone who never, who had all of that, but didn't know that the sticky part of the pad was supposed to go facing down. It's like the things that we think are so obvious are not so obvious. I know someone who the first time she used a tampon, didn't know you were supposed to take the applicator out. And so she wore a tampon with the applicator in her body. So make sure they know. And if you are someone who has never had a period, you can YouTube it together. You can look together. You can ask a trusted friend or relative to show you, you know, there's no shame. There are lots of women who are no longer getting their periods. And so they may not have the stuff in the house. I would say if you packed your child's period pack like a while ago, you probably want to double check the size of the underwear uh, the size of the leggings, because if it's been a while and their extra underwear is like three sizes too small, that might be <laughs> might be an issue. Um, Not that my kids ever leave the house anymore, but someday. I mean, that's actually like a great part of the pandemic is that mm. girls are beginning to menstruate in the comfort of their own <laughs> homes with their trusted adults around them. And it actually like, true. allows them to get really comfortable with it before they're out in the world, living their best menstrual lives. Mm -hmm. Um, So a word on using a tampon, because we get this question a lot, is it safe? Some people have been advised by their pediatricians that it's not safe or it's too young. And I've talked to Cara Narsen a lot about this. So Cara's advice about girls and tampons is that really the challenge is about executive functioning. Are they able to keep track of how long the tampon has been in and take the tampon out after 
not too soon so that it's not, they don't, you don't want it to be dry and not saturated and therefore it will be painful when you pull it out. Also, not that it's in so long so that it's either totally saturated and leaking or, you know, what we referenced earlier, the toxic shock syndrome, you can't leave a tampon in for too long. Otherwise it's not healthy. So her point is if you have a child who's able to monitor how long a tampon has been in and to do that successfully, that it is safe to have her use them. Now, some girls are immediately ready and willing to try using a tampon and other girls need more time. Here's what I will say, and this is something that we talk a lot about in our workshops. We remind girls that it is okay to touch their own bodies and to put their fingers inside their vaginas. They have been given the message since probably toddlerhood when they may have been self-soothing by rubbing their clitoris or touching their bodies. And someone told them that that is disgusting and to never touch that part of their body again. Through all the socialization, they have been told, don't touch yourself, quote unquote, down there. Having said that, it's very hard to be a menstruating female without touching yourself. Um, And we're not even going to get into the topic of pleasure. But if you are using a tampon, you have to know that it's okay to touch your body. But even more so, you need to know how many holes you have down there. One of the number one Googled search questions for Dynamo Girl is, how many holes does a female have down there? Really fascinating, right? Um, So they need to know that they have three holes and they need to feel comfortable finding the middle hole, the vagina, the opening to the vagina in order to be able to put in a tampon. But if you do that in a bathroom with your mother standing over you and you're desperately trying to put in a tampon for the first time, what happens to the vagina? Vagina is a muscle that will tense up and putting in a tampon would be very challenging. So what I encourage with the permission of parents, I encourage girls to figure out, well, where is that hole at a time when they are relaxed and not stressed and not anxious and not desperately trying to put in a tampon for the first time. So they need to know where the holes are. The second thing is when girls are early on and using tampons, we recommend using Vaseline so that it goes in more easily and there's more lubrication. Um, So those are just two, two pro tips. Those are great pro tips. Are there anything about boys that it just feels a lot easier to talk about boys quickly because the mechanics are different, but it's also because I'm not a boy. So, and I don't have sons. So is there anything about boys who are, let's use the boy that isn't talking about anything and isn't, isn't wanting to share this body with anyone. And, you know, I'm thinking of someone in particular, you know, 12 years old, some things are probably happening. And if there's nobody to talk to and you're in the middle of a pandemic, so you're not even getting locker room talk, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. Um, what's the approach? Now, I love what you said earlier, because I think it's true. I, I think the plant um, analogy is wonderful. I always think about being a cat as our kids get older, 
less like a dog just because I I'm inclined to be like a dog, just like all over there. <laughs> so totally. But at a certain point, what if they're walking out of the room? Because I do think kids hear what you're saying, even when they're not listening in a room, if they're covering their ears, yeah. all of those things are true. But what if they really are walking out of the room and they're a boy and you're a mom and you don't know how to reach them, but they are going through puberty. So I think if you have a kid who's really resisting kind of hearing from you or having conversations about stuff, you maybe start with a slightly easier topic. Like you don't break things in using puberty. You might use another topic that's kind of maybe less emotional, more factual based. Maybe it's something where you can give them just like a few pieces of information. Like for instance, like, hey, I heard that there may be some kids at school who are vaping. Here are three reasons why we don't want you vaping. Like here are the three main risks, right? So maybe you start with something that's like really data or really factual, and then you kind of work your way into it. I also think as a parent, you can set some boundaries and expectations. Like here's something that I want to talk to you about. I'm just like, we're going to spend five minutes together. I just want to give you a little bit of information and then you can go and play Xbox. But I, I just like, this is really important. And as your parent, it's my responsibility to give you this information, right? So that's a big, I, I, I just want to highlight that because it's really an important thing to keep in mind since there are plenty of, we have plenty of responsibility and sometimes we do have to deal with that pushback. And I love that you pointed out it's five minutes. It doesn't have to be every, everything isn't at the same time. You don't have to put it all. They don't need all the information at once. It can be little moments, but they do need it. And it's okay sometimes to say, this is my responsibility. And so this is not really, you know, this, this is, is not, not a negotiable. This is not negotiable. Right. Exactly. And I think, I mean, that you mentioned about it, that it's five minutes and it's not the talk. We grew up with the talk. It's not the talk. It is many, That's right. many small conversations over the course of several years that grow in complexity and sophistication and depth and intimacy. I mean, it's a classic spiral, which gets bigger and bigger and more complicated so don't put the pressure on yourself that this is like one and Great. done. Or if you mess mm -hmm. it up, you'll never have an opportunity because you are still the grown-up and you still, still get to decide what you say to your children. They may make facial expressions that you don't appreciate. They may have body language that makes you feel shut down, but you are allowed to say to them, I'm going to set the timer. We're going to talk about this for five minutes and then you can go. And I think that's really critical. Now, more effective is including them in the conversation, eliciting information from them, asking questions with curiosity, but some kids aren't going to play that game. They're just not going to engage and that's okay. I mean, I always use the example, I have one child who doesn't like to say, I love you. And for years, my husband and I were like, oh my God, maybe he doesn't love us. Why won't he say he loves us? Oh, this is so heartbreaking, right? We were just like <laughs> devastated. And then I had this realization one day, I was like, you know what? It doesn't matter if he tells us he loves us. All that matters is that we tell him that we love him, that he hears that we love him. And it's the same thing with talking about puberty. 
it's not always going to be this like beautiful, meaningful, seminal moment in our lives with our children. Sometimes it's just like a piece of information and off you go. It's not always going to be an engagement. Mm-hmm. It's not always going to be a dialogue or a conversation. Sometimes you're just giving them information you need them to have and it won't be satisfying and it won't be mind blowing, but it is still equally important to have given them that information. I think in terms of boys, the most critical thing that a parent can remember is that boys have really rich and deep emotional lives. And that even though our society tells us that they shouldn't, or they don't, or they're a wimp if they do, they have incredibly thoughtful, meaningful, just emotional experiences and ideas and perceptions. And the sooner that you can acknowledge that in your sons and engage them in that way, the more comfortable they will be talking to you about the big things in their lives. And frankly, the richer your relationship with your kid will be, and they will trust you more and more. But that trust is built because they are told, oh, I'm not supposed to talk about this stuff with my parents, or I'm not supposed to feel these things because guys don't feel these things. So to me, for boys and puberty, the most critical thing is remembering that they have really rich emotional lives too, and to assume that as your starting point. I mean, we, there's a million things I can talk about with boys, mm. but that is the most critical thing. I will say one other thing. Can I say one thing about weight gain? Because Absolutely. Is- oh yeah, that's actually, please say something. So it's not just females who tend to grow out before they grow up. Males do also. And we don't yet have the data from weight gain in kids during the pandemic, but there was an amazing article in the New York Times recently by Virginia Soul Smith that we can assume there, anecdotally, we see there has been weight gain, we can assume. And if we have children who are of age to be beginning puberty, that's kind of double layers of weight gain. So children, both biologically male and biologically female, will gain weight, will grow out before they go grow up. And kids will have likely gained weight during a pandemic. And the best thing that we can do is not freak them out and not put them on a diet and not shame them and not make them feel awful. The best thing we can do is get them active, is give them healthy food choices and to make sure they know that we love them and we don't judge them and we don't shame them because they are, we've all gained weight during the pandemic. I was just about to say, and there'll be just as much data on adult weight gain, but we, you know, I have, people have mentioned it so much. It's such a concern and it is very hard not to impose that, that the heaviness the weight of that concern onto kids who do not need that added to their plates. No, I mean, if you think about how stressed out we are, kids are more resilient than, than we are, but to have that on, have that baggage. I mean, they think something like 50% of eating disorders originate during puberty and during the time of weight gain. And so that tells us what kind of messaging kids are getting in decoding boys, which is Carr's book about teenage boys. She points to- We'll put that in the show notes. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be a weighty show notes. I know. It's going to be like 10 pages long. That one in 
four um, eating disordered teens are male, but she thinks that might even be higher. She thinks it might be one in three kids with eating disorders are male. So boys get the same messaging that girls get. They are under as much pressure to look a certain way, to have six packs, to have, to be slim, to be muscular. And so we don't just have to be careful about our messaging to our daughters. We also have to be careful about our messaging to our sons.